At the start of the book of Zechariah, God challenged his people. He said to his people, return to me and I will return to you. And we were told the people responded to that challenge with repentance. But in the passage we're going to look at this morning, we find some cause for concern. There is cause in our passage this morning to question how deep that repentance has really gone. Last week we looked at the end of Zechariah's night visions. And this morning we rejoin him 21 months later. In chapter 7, that's when the word of the Lord comes to him again. Chapter 7 and 8 go together as a very definite unit. And we're going to look at both of them this morning. If you're looking for that in your church Bible, it's page 953. We can break these two chapters down into four sections. And we can summarize each section with some words from either the people or God. We could summarize the first section with a question that comes from the people. The question is, do I have to? And the message of this section is that minimalist religion produces a desolate wasteland. Look down to chapter 7, verse 1. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. The people of Bethel had sent Sharezer and Regimelech together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Up to this point, the book has focused on Jerusalem and the project of rebuilding Jerusalem. At this point in time, the building project is well underway. And we suddenly become aware here that there's more going on in Israel. Up to this point, we might have got the impression everyone is occupied with the building work. But now we learn that's not the case. The men and women who have returned from exile have by now spread out to towns and cities outside Jerusalem. And for many of them, the work in Jerusalem would not have been a big concern. They're removed from it. And they're occupied with other things. Bethel was a town about 10 miles north of Jerusalem. And the people of Bethel send a delegation to Jerusalem. The delegation is looking for an answer to this question from the whole community in Bethel. Should I mourn and fast in the fifth month? as I have done for so many years? What's this about? Well, the context here is that the Israelites have just returned from about 70 years of exile outside Israel. And during that time of exile, the Israelite community set up some special days of remembrance. As a community, they didn't want to forget their past. So on certain significant dates, the community mourned and fasted in exile 
to commemorate the tragedy that had happened to them. If we're looking for something to compare it to today, maybe we could think of Remembrance Sunday, the day when we remember those who gave their lives in the wars. The difference is that the whole Israelite community participated in their days of remembrance. I don't know what the figures are for our Remembrance Sunday, but I imagine it's not a massive proportion of the population who participate. And not only did all Israel take part in these memorial days, they took part in a serious way. They didn't just have a minute's silence. These days were a big deal. Later, our passage is going to mention memorial days in the 4th, 5th, 7th, and 10th months of the year. Each one of them marked a significant event that was connected to the exile. The delegation from Bethel are asking about the memorial in the fifth month. That particular memorial day marked the day that the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed. And the sense of their question here is, do we have to? They're not asking this in a neutral frame of mind. They want to stop, and they're looking for God to give them the okay to stop. Their attitude is, aren't we back home now? Do we have to keep doing this stuff? Can't we move on? We're getting a bit tired of these days of remembrance. In fact, they already seem to be forgetting. Their question could be translated as, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for these how many years? What are we to make of their question? And what are we to make of the attitude behind the question? Well, let's see what God makes of it. Look at verse 4. Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? God replies to Bethel's question with a question of his own. And the thrust of his question is this. What about your hearts? Yes, you dutifully took part in those memorial days in exile. But what was your motivation? Were you really doing it to mourn the sin and disobedience that led to the exile? Or were you doing it for yourselves? To get what you wanted from me? To get me to end the exile? Actually, this is more than just a question from God. It's an accusation. God is accusing them of being people who live only for themselves, who are motivated by selfishness. Their feasting is for themselves, and so is their religious fasting. It's not to honor God. It's to get them to do what they want. Where's the evidence for that? Well, it's seen in the fact that now the exile is over, Now they've got what they wanted. They're asking, can we stop these days of remembering now? Our lives are better. We're past the crisis. Do we have to keep doing this stuff? And God's response is, 
These days are reminders of your dependence on me. They're reminders of the terrible consequences of sin. Wanting to get out of them raises questions about the state of your hearts. It suggests that you'll cry out to me in a crisis, but once you're healthy again, once there's food on the table again, then being devoted to me starts to seem like a chore. And that tells me, God says, your worship of me is not really about me. It's about yourselves. As far as you see it, I'm just here for emergencies. Is this a danger for you and me as well? Certainly it is. If we find ourselves looking at prayer and Bible study and meeting together and obedience in general, and if we find ourselves thinking in the face of those things, do I have to? Then it's time to examine our hearts. If we find ourselves trying to figure out the bare minimum we can devote to God and still pass as a Christian, isn't that a problem? We love to talk about the dangers of legalism. And legalism is a great danger. It's dangerous to think that doing certain things earns us points with God. But minimalism is an equally great danger. And that's the danger God is addressing here. Minimalism is trying to figure out how little we can be devoted to God while still staying on the right side of him. Still being able to count on him in a crisis. Rob Parsons gives us an everyday example that captures this pretty well. He says... We were just about to eat when my friend said, well, I suppose we'd better say grace. His words seemed to hang in the air. In a world where millions are starving, we were sitting in a warm home at a table laden with food. I almost thought I heard heaven say, keep it. What does this kind of minimalism lead to? Well, the people of Bethel ought to know what it leads to. They have just come back from the exile that resulted from the minimalism of their parents and their grandparents. In verse 7, God reminds them that in the days of their parents and grandparents, Israel was a prosperous place. In its heyday, Israel's territory had expanded to include the Negev and the western foothills. Those were areas that used to belong to their enemies. In those days, Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous. Just as these returned exiles are beginning to be at rest and prosperous once again. But then God reminds these returned exiles that the challenge he's giving them is the same challenge he gave to their ancestors. Because God sees in these people 
the roots of the same minimalism he saw in their ancestors. Look what he says in verse 9. This is what the Lord Almighty said. That's to their ancestors. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. But they refused to pay attention. They stubbornly turned their backs and covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his Spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations where they were strangers. The land they left behind them was so desolate that no one traveled through it. This is how they made the pleasant land desolate. Earlier prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah tell us that those earlier generations of Israelites never stopped being religious. They kept going through the motions with their sacrifices and their prayers. As far as they saw it, they were paying their dues to God. But God saw it very differently. Through Isaiah, he said, stop bringing me meaningless offerings. Now, God was not saying the offerings in themselves were meaningless. He had commanded them. His point was, your heart attitude is making your offerings meaningless. In your minds, you're throwing me a bone to keep me happy. But you have no time for the costly day-to-day obedience that I'm looking for. Integrity in all of your dealings. Daily lives that are full of mercy and compassion. Hearts that are not taken up with scheming how you can get one over on other people. I warned them, God says, but in verse 11, they refused to pay attention. Yes, they kept going with their minimalist religious routines. They kept throwing me religious bones. A sacrifice here and a prayer there. But it was all about covering their backs. It was just an insurance policy for them. They refused to go all in with me. They refused to give me their lives. They refused to pursue true obedience Monday to Friday. And so God says, I rejected their minimalist religion. I scattered them among all the nations. And the land of Israel became a desolate wasteland. That's where minimalism always leads to. England is in the state it's in today because of minimalist religion. The kind of religion that tries to give God a little corner in our lives while we keep charge of the main thoroughfare of our lives. And we can see the end product of generations of that in the number of people who show up to church once a year at Christmas. Because, well, we're still a Christian country after all. 
But that's the advanced stages of minimalism. It starts with people like you and me. Men and women who are in church, who call ourselves Christians, but who have a heart attitude or who begin to have a heart attitude that says, do I have to? Can I set some limits on my devotion to God? Can I set a few boundaries around what God gets from me? Can I get away with less and still be okay? Still be confident that he's got my back whenever I need him? So let's ask ourselves, do I ever catch myself thinking, if I give God Sunday, or at least Sunday morning, can I cut a few corners with my honesty on Monday? Can I keep the porn habit or the racist attitude? Can I keep the cutthroat ambition that's prepared to trample others so I can get ahead in my career? Can I keep this grudge that I have against my brother or sister in Christ? If that is our heart attitude or some form of that, then we need to listen more carefully when we're offering our praise on Sundays. Because we might hear heaven saying, keep it. And if we persist, we are contributing to the spiritual desolation that's covering this land. We're teaching our children and grandchildren and our work colleagues that God is just a bit of a ball and chain for us. We need him for emergencies, but he's not our source of joy. We wouldn't dream of pursuing after him as our greatest treasure in life. Now, considering what we've just heard, we might expect God to launch into a list of what the returned exiles need to do, what they have to do to revive this desolation, to make the spiritual wasteland fertile again, But that is not what we find in the passage. The stern warning to the Israelites in chapter 7 is followed in chapter 8 by an idyllic description of what God is going to do. The people's do we have to is followed immediately by God's words which say, I will be faithful. God's commitment will build a flourishing city. The beginning of chapter 8, the people's minimalist religion is contrasted with God's wholehearted commitment. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. This, uh, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city. And the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. 
This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with cane in hand because of their age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. This is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvelous to the remnant of this people at that time, but will it seem marvelous to me, declares the Lord Almighty? This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people, and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. This picture will become a reality because of God's faithfulness. Faithfulness that will not give up on the city he has promised to build. If this depended on his wavering, half-hearted people, it would never happen. The new Jerusalem will be built, and it will be bursting with prosperity and blessing because of God's commitment to his promises. Now, in Zechariah's day, Jerusalem's population was one-fifth of what it had been before the exile. The streets were not filled with the laughter of children. And I doubt that many of ripe old age had been able to make the long journey back from Babylon. And yes, there's no doubt in the years that followed, things did improve in Jerusalem. But we've noticed before in this book God's promises about a future city find their ultimate fulfillment in the church of Jesus Christ. This picture of a thriving city is giving us a flavor of the new heaven and earth, the eternal home of the church. Notice again what God says in verse 8. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people. And I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. The book of Revelation describes the day when God will fulfill this promise. John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. God understands that it's a big stretch for Zechariah's audience to imagine this. The Jerusalem they know is half deserted. We might see a parallel with the state of the church here in England. And God knows too, if these men and women have listened to his words in chapter 7, then they're aware of their own wandering hearts, their own unfaithfulness, their own lack of commitment. So from a human perspective, the reality of this future city looks like a big stretch. God is well aware of that. So notice what he says in verse 6. 
It may seem marvelous to the remnant of this people at that time, but will it seem marvelous to me, declares the Lord Almighty? The word marvelous here has the sense of incredible, too good to be true. God says, it may seem that way to you, but it's not incredible to me. Yes, if the reality of this picture depended on you, if you had to build the city and fill the streets, then I agree, we'd be sunk. This world would be a fantasy. This city would be a fantasy. But God says the reality is, I'm the one who will do it. My power and faithfulness will make sure this becomes a reality. There's an echo here of God's words from chapter 4. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Well, at this point we might ask, what does this have to do with God's challenge to the people back in chapter 7? Well, we're about to see the connection. Having promised that the future depends on him, God returns to talking about the people's commitment and obedience. In verse 9, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Now hear these words. Let your hands be strong so that the temple may be built. This is also what the prophets said who were present when the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord Almighty. Before that time, there were no wages for people or hire for animals. No one could go about their business safely because of their enemies, since I had turned everyone against their neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as I did in the past, declares the Lord Almighty. The seed will grow well. The vine will yield its fruit. The ground will produce its crops and the heavens will drop their dew. I will give all these things as an inheritance to the remnant of this people. Just as you, Judah and Israel, have been a curse among the nations, so I will save you and you will be a blessing. Do not be afraid, but let your hands be strong. Let your hands be strong. God's promises motivate us to joyful commitment. Notice the order of things. The people are to be obedient, but not because the success of God's plans depends on the people. Before he called them to obedience, God assured them the success was up to him. And that's what gives his people confidence to serve him courageously and with full commitment. That's what gives strength to their hands. We know God is going to deliver. Serving him is not a wasted effort. I remember going once to a missions conference. And the speaker on the night I went gave us a very powerful challenge. He outlined all the great needs in the world. The great need especially to see the church built. And at the climax of his challenge, he said to us, God has work for you to do. And if you don't do it, it won't get done. Is that true? 
According to Zechariah chapter 8, it is not true. That kind of statement might make a big impression at a missions conference. It might give Christians a burst of motivation. But in the long run, that causes Christians to despair. If I'm trying to serve God wherever he's put put me, and if I find myself making my normal hash out of things, it is crushing to believe it all depends on me. It's crushing and it's not true. The starting point of our service is God's promise that it all depends on him. That's what gives strength to our hands. That's what gives us courage. Despite our inability and our cluelessness most of the time, the outcome is certain. God will get it done. And so we can abandon our minimalist religion and go all in with God. We don't need to worry about hedging our bets are balancing our portfolio. We can trust God with everything we've got. Investing our lives in his kingdom is the safest investment we will ever make. So here's how that challenge at the missions conference should have gone. God has work for you to do. So don't miss out on the joy and privilege of being a willing instrument in God's hands. And God goes on to give clear guidelines about what it means to willingly invest our lives in his kingdom. He shows us what all-in commitment looks like. Verse 14, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Just as I had determined to bring disaster on you and showed no pity when your ancestors angered me, says the Lord Almighty, so now I have determined to do good again to Jerusalem and Judah. Do not be afraid. These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other. And do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The fasts of the fourth, fifth, seventh, and tenth months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. All-in commitment with God starts in our hearts. It starts with loving truth and peace. That's what leads us to speak the truth and to give up plotting evil in our hearts. These are timeless things. These are the same things God mentioned in chapter 7 when he recalled his words to past generations in Israel. And aren't these the things we heard in our reading from Colossians earlier? God's words to the New Testament church. This kind of obedience starts with a change of heart. A decision 
to trust God's promises and pursue godly character. And the outcome is that what used to feel like religious drudgery to us becomes a joy to us. Look in verse 19. The fasts fasts of the fourth, fifth, seventh, and tenth months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Remember how chapter 7 started. It started with the delegation from Bethel trying to get out of a fast day. To them, it was just a chore. They wanted to be excused from it. But here God says that when we go all in with him, when we give our hearts to him, the more we begin to hate what he hates and love what he loves, then commitment to him will turn from a fast into a festival for us. Pouring our lives out for him will be a privilege that we treasure rather than something we try to avoid. Service for God will go from something that sounds like death to us to something that is true life for us. And we must be careful not to misunderstand here. God is not promising Once you go all in with me, everything is going to be rosy. God is not saying, stick with me and all the bitter lemons in your life will turn to sweet lemonade. No, the point is, even when life is not rosy for you, even when it's full of bitter lemons, there is still a joy for God's people. It might not be a joy that causes us to dance around. It might not be a joy that's always on the surface. It may well be a joy that's hidden sometimes behind tears. But it is a joy that is based on something unshakable. It's based on the faithfulness and the commitment of our God. The confidence that he will deliver on his promises to us. And this is what he has promised his people. I will save you and you will be a blessing. When that promise has worked its way into our hearts, then we are ready to hear his call on us. Do not be afraid, but let your hands be strong. Strong to serve me. The final verses of our passage tell us this kind of all-in devotion is an attractive thing. Let us go with you. Joyful commitment attracts others. Verse 20. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go at once and entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, 10 people from all languages and nations 
will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. That's the power of lives that are committed to God. Now, of course, we know very well, not everyone is going to be attracted by our commitment to God. But we can be absolutely sure no one is going to be attracted by half-hearted minimalist religion. No one is going to rush to find out about our God if we act like allegiance to God is a ball and chain to us. Those of us who have come to God through Jesus Christ, those of us who belong to the eternal city that God is building, let's show the world what citizens of God's city are like. Let's pursue godly lives that show just a little bit of what life is going to be like in his presence. And let's trust his character. He has promised to build the city. And he is faithful. Let's respond to God's word as we sing together, O church, arise.